Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Impolite Company, where we discuss all the things that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. I'm your host, Scott Wingeter. Today on our show, we have Dr. Johnny Sego, who is uh, my guest today. Dr. Johnny Sego uh, is the executive director of Paideia Classical School. She's an author, a professor of education, and a homeschool advocate. And she's also a dear friend and mentor to me. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So... I don't get a chance to do this often with uh, other guests, uh, but because you have an education background and I'm a teacher, uh, we can just go ahead and get uh, you know the thing started how we would in a classroom, right? Oh, with good. Academic vocabulary, right? So, education. What is that? Well, uh, let me specify. So, modern education is the dispensing of information from a source of influence to a source of subjection. So that is teacher, I have all the answers, and I share with you, my pupil, all of the information, which in a few days or weeks, I'm going to ask you to regurgitate that for me. Mm. Okay, that's modern education. And, um, but true education, when we go back to the monasteries, mm -hmm. and they were replicating the classical education of the Greeks, and that is actually building a disciple. Ah. And so I'm as concerned about how you paint and play soccer as I am about how well you did on your physics test. I see. So this word that you used, classical, I can think of, you know, we have Coke classic, we have classic cars, we have classic rock. Uh, other than naval terms, what are we talking about? <laughs> That's good. That's very good. <laughs> That's a, a good point there. That uh, you can stick the word classic on anything and uh, make more money, right? But that's not what we're here for. Right. So Wait, uh, I... I got into education to make money. I know you did. Me too. And I tell all of my pupils that if it weren't for the money, I'd probably go into medicine. But no, I've got to stay here for the money. So uh, so classical education is just what I just mentioned. So in classical education, our goal is to build a disciple. So I'm looking at this whole child. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I'm looking at the character of this child. And I'm working on building the character of the child. And in order to do that, he can't be a dummy. Mm. So he does have to pursue academics. <laughs> so that's part of it. But he also has to pursue, as you know, Luke 2 says, being in favor with God and man. Mm -hmm. And so he, he has to pursue that. He has to pursue his spiritual relationships as well as his relationships with his peers and his teachers. So um, I mentioned about the monasteries where the monks trained young men, mm -hmm. but they trained those young men for specific thing. They wanted them to also pursue some kind of a religious career, a priest, a monk, um, some kind of a bishop. They wanted they wanted these young men to grow up to be older men who could lead ah. and influence. And that's what classic education goes back to, the influence of someone over another, not the subjugation mm -hmm. of that person over another. And it's about taking these young people, these young minds, and, and teaching them about 
uh, this is an antiquated word, unfortunately, but virtue. I love it. And when you don't have virtue, if you just stuff a kid full of knowledge, right, without any virtue, without wisdom, without uh, an appreciation for truth, uh, you you end up with Victor Frankenstein, you know, and then we're all surprised when he creates the monster. The monster, right? (laughs) I, uh, you know, Scott, we've been running Padilla Classical School for about 34 years, and I... I can count on one hand the occasions where this had to happen, but it has had to happen where I've told a very bright pupil, usually a male, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm not going to continue your education because I'm not going to educate a fool mm-hmm. because you'll be a detriment to society. You'll just be very well educated, but no better for the culture. And so I've, had to release some very smart students mm-hmm. because I, 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 they weren't willing to be discipled. This isn't on my cheat sheet, but it, it just popped in my head. So here's a question for you. Is education a right? Oh, goodness, no. No, no. <laughs> you, no you don't have the right to That's it. the wrong answer if you <laughs> want to teach in public school today. I'm just telling I'm you. I'm sorry. I know John Dewey <laughs> would say differently. Right. Right. Boo hiss. Yes, yes. Boo hiss on because Dewey was wrong about so many things. Sure. That's one thing. The other thing he was wrong about is that what we do for the best and brightest of all our children, we have to do for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm, I know this is impolite conversation, so I could almost cuss about that because <laughs> because it's like the the best and brightest will appreciate what you're doing for them. Mm-hmm. Those other ones, they don't even know. They, they don't even acknowledge nor appreciate mm-hmm. all of the wealth that you're putting in front of them. Right. And so, yeah, so that that's ridiculous. <laughs> I could go all, I could write a book about all the things he got wrong. But anyway, that's no, stupid. you should t- totally do that because <laughs> I can't stand John Dewey, curse him. So uh, <laughs> the word paideia is a Greek word. Yes. Would you like to expound upon what that means? I would a love bit to. More? So uh, paideia is a Greek word, and it does mean the whole. So that's when I said we were educating um, the whole child. Mm-hmm. So body, mind, spirit. I have a painting in my office that uh, a former parent, uh, he had six kids. They've all graduated from our program. He painted for me a picture of a young man Uh, in his room with a stack of books on his shelf with some sports trophies on top of a piano that was in this young man's room. Mm -hmm. And outside the window, you can see that he's got friends playing sports. Mm -hmm. And you just know that in soon, this young man is going to go out there and he's going to join his friends and play sports with them. But right now, he's reading God's Word. Ah. And it's open on his bed and he's there in a very relaxed posture, just reading God's word. And so that's the picture of Padaya. Mm-hmm. I call that young man Petrarch from the Renaissance because yeah. he's a Renaissance man. Nice. He has it all, right? Um, and so that's the idea of Padaya. I, I want a well-rounded human. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my husband and I have eight children. And uh, although some of them excelled in academics, some of them excelled in sports, uh, some of them excelled in goofing off, and some of them <laughs> excelled in cooking, you know, but our goal was whenever uh, they left our home that all the girls could 
change a tire and cook a meal, and all of the boys could change diapers and cook a meal, yeah. uh, as well as, you know, shoot a gun. Sure. So that's, <laughs> you know, very, that's very much the paideia way. So we met, you mentioned Buhis John Dewey. Yes. Um, and how he has basically, I, I would, I don't think it's too strong of a word to say totally perverted education. Correct. Uh, in America. Um, would you like to explain the history behind that, what he did, uh, why it's a bad thing, and why we need to return to a classical education here in America? Sure. So um, as, as most people know who've read any kind of history at all, Dewey came uh, on the tales of the Industrial Revolution. And that's exactly what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He wanted to industrialize education. So he started by breaking down education into little manageable slots. Mm -hmm. So this is what you need to know in first grade. And then when you know that, then you can move to second grade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And his goal was that he wanted to make a citizen of every student. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I'm all about citizenship. I we we teach that um, sure. where we are. Uh, we're in the great state of Texas, and citizenship is required of uh, our education here in the state of Texas. And we, I really believe in students being citizens of their school. I have this little speech that you are citizens, not tourists, mm -hmm. and that means that you pay for a road you'll never drive on. You <laughs> are going to, you know, pay into things that you will never use because you're a citizen. Mm -hmm. So I did that in my own home with our children. They were all my citizens in my home. So um, they always made my bed. Now, of course, they had to make theirs too, but but they had to make a bed they were never going to sleep in. Mm -hmm. They cleaned up a meal that sometimes they uh, couldn't eat. They, you know, they did all those things to to put into. But that's not what Dewey meant by citizenship. Right. No. He meant we're all the same. And so that's what he wanted. And the biggest thing that he was creating, he was creating workers. Mm -hmm. So he was creating somebody who would work for somebody else. So it was this idea that, who oh golly, you're just going to get me all riled up here. That's it's the point. Idea, <laughs> it's this idea that you don't have to think anymore. Sure. Just forget that thinking business. That's mm -hmm. too much work for you. So I'll do all the thinking and I will tell you what to do. And you just do. Because he's an elite expert. Uh, this is the progressive mindset. Correct. Which Dewey, of course, was progressive. And, you know, I love, I always use the imagery of, you know, like I was born in 1983. So like, it's stamped on my forehead by a machine, which means that in 1989, I have to enter kindergarten. And they're expected to do this, this, and that, you know. And all the way on through until 2001 when I'm supposed to get handed the piece of paper that says I'm educated. Correct. Correct. You know, 83 was a great year because uh, for so many reasons, obviously because you were born. But, and Reagan was president. And Reagan was president. And also that's the year we started homeschooling uh, because it had just become legal in the yeah. great state of Texas. And um, I can remember 
going to Dairy Queen. My uh, children had just finished a spelling test. Uh So we were so proud, right? Because we could finally spell. And so my little girl was eight and my little boy was five. And so we get, it's about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We get in line at Dairy Queen and my little five-year-old boy is there and a man in a business suit turns around to him and says to him, excuse me, young man, shouldn't you be in school? And without missing a beat, my son, John, uh, looked up at that man and said, "Uh, excuse me, sir, shouldn't you be at work? And so, you know, John had learned to think at five. Yeah. And uh, and he wasn't just going to stand in line and be the cog in the wheel. He's still not today. Sounds like he should have been a lawyer or something. Or something. Or maybe a (laughs) legislative director. Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. Very good. Um. When we talk about Dewey, and I think I think it's the intentional dumbing down of America, and I, I can't look at it in any other light. And you know, he, he, you touched on this earlier with your comment about he wanted to make everybody equal, and there's in philosophy, especially political philosophy, this uh, you know we use the same word, but you know, it's like Inigo Matoya, you know. You keep using that word, but I do not think it means what I you think it means. I don't think it means that. You know, Aristotle uh, was all about equity, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and so our sophomores through seniors read Aristotle. And um, just the other day, one of my sophomores mm-hmm. said that very same thing. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, according to Aristotle, equity is giving every man his due. Right. Well, you know, Scott, you and I are not do the same thing. Right. You know, you have a bunch of little beautiful children. Mm-hmm. And so you you should be able to get more sleep than I do because you need more energy. But it's not happening for you, I know. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I'm saying? It's like we yeah. don't all need the same thing. We need to get... Our need met, not yes. be doled out, you know, all of the same things. Exactly. And, it, and it, it fundamentally goes down to what who you are going to for that definition of, quote, equality. Is it Locke or is it Rousseau? Or is it Rousseau? And, right. you know, unfortunately, the left, the progressives, the communists, the socialists, you know, call them whatever you want to call them, they are always going to Rousseau. If, you know quick history lesson here if you want to know the difference between the two philosophies juxtapose the american revolution to the french revolution. to the french that's perfect and that's it that, that that's what you have under lockean philosophy under natural law theory under the sort of system that we have in america or what it was intended to be uh what makes you and i equal is that we have the same rights we have the same law yes yes exactly and the progressives don't like that. No. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, because I, John Dewey, am the expert and I'm an elitist, I'm going to make it look like I'm an advocate for everybody. But what I'm really doing is I'm elevating myself and all of my cronies who are progressives as well because they're the experts. Correct. And we're going to keep you down and push you down and make it so that you're incapable of critical thinking. That's right. I, I don't... Uh, I want to make sure that um, your listeners know, like, I'm I'm not just a public school basher. I'm an equal opportunity basher. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I worked for the Department of Education for a long time. Mm-hmm. And my goal uh, during that time was to turn that ship around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This was in the 80s. And everybody knew that the public system, the public school system was dying. Mm-hmm. This was not a joke. This was not a secret. And um, my office was on the University of Houston campus. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty much in the inner city schools. Yeah. And my... my office was called uh the center for inner city schools okay okay and um so so there was no lying about this is a failing system Mm -hmm. so whenever they brought me in and my goal is to okay we're failing we want to succeed do a 180 yeah don't put a band-aid on this Mm -hmm. you know but let's change this so whenever i began to talk to curriculum supervisors and uh, writers and uh, book adopters um, and that kind of thing. And I talked about classical education. Mm -hmm. Well, oh my goodness, you know, well then I was an elitist. I was a white man's advocate, which, you know, that none of that really seemed like an insult to me, but that they said it, you know, like it was. Yeah. And um, just, you know, a terrible situation. So I'd, obviously I didn't, turn the ship around and the ship is still going in the same direction. It has been down Mm -hmm. straight down. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's unfortunate. You know, I, when I talk about classical education, I say, okay, well, you know, like, let's just look at what it's given us. Okay. It's given us the Renaissance. It's giving us the scientific revolution. It's given us the Protestant reformation. It's given us the, uh, uh, enlightenment the industrial revolution was started because brilliant minds started like putting all this stuff together and like the world around you is literally built because of the evolution of these things in society uh, why would you ever go away from that <laughs> it, right i you know you know i agree with you 100% mm-hmm. i mean even the technological revolutions that we're living in now. Sure. And um, like I, I'll hear a lot of people uh, say, uh, oh, well, you're a classicist. You're against technology. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. You know, <laughs> wh- why? Why would I be against moving forward in time? So the progressives think they own that. Right. You know, that they own that piece of, oh, well, we're progressive. So mm-hmm. we're about moving forward. No, they're about a certain group of people yes. moving forward. And and that means that everybody else has to be pushed aside. I, I want to quickly point out, to, to piggyback off of that idea, uh, everybody should go and look at uh, Calvin Coolidge's July, it was actually the 5th of July, 1926, but it was on the 150th year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't have the speech completely memorized, but he said, if it's true that mankind has a right to life, that is final. If he has liberty, that is final. If he's allowed to pursue happiness, that is final. And anybody that is making any claim uh, of, quote, progress towards those things is not making progress because of their finality. Uh, Anybody that's trying to make progress on that is actually regressing to a point in history in which... uh, you know, we didn't have those rights guaranteed. And we had to fight for that. Yeah. That's right. And that's right. unfortunately, that seems to be where we're heading once again. Um, and looking at 
the civil society, the body politic, every single um, issue that we're facing today, I see classical education being the solution. Uh, well, we can agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, you know, what social disorder it wouldn't help mm -hmm. because, you know, we build classical education on truth, beauty, and goodness. Yes. And so, therefore, if I am true then, and I will tell you the truth, that is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And we can't depend on every person that we hear in this election cycle, mm -hmm. you know, to tell us that and to be a beautiful example mm -hmm. of, um, of not just a good citizen, but a good leader. And that... That's what we've really got to work on. Where can you find, if I wanted to start looking into uh, where these ideas of truth and beauty and goodness, uh, where can I find these ideas? Uh, you just, I, I teed that up, I'm sure. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, uh, Mortimer Adler wrote a book called The Paideia Way. Mm -hmm. All right, and in that book, he defines for us not just the education of the whole, but also what does that mean? What would I say a well-rounded, well-educated, good citizen with great character who mm -hmm. appreciates beauty, truth, and goodness, um, you know, what would I, how would I define that person? So uh, he wrote The Paideia Way. It's a beautiful short book mm -hmm. on that this citizen, this model child or adult who um, embodies all of those things. Now, I'm going to take a little quick aside here. And so William Bennett, who is the Secretary of Education, um, I know he was a great guy, but he really screwed that up mm -hmm. because he tried to take the paideia away and he tried to do the progressive thing and make it into what every first grader needs to know and what every second grader needs to know. And that, mm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being polite here. That was just wrong, mm -hmm. you know, because I can't, because uh, then we get again to, you know, your little darling girl who just loves life every day of her life is not the same as your oldest, your, your older child, Gavin, who please just give me a book and leave me alone, yes. right? So I can't say that that first grader needs the same as that first grader. Right. So I'll take a quick aside here. No, that's fine. You're okay. Great. So my um, son, uh, John, the one uh, that, you know, told the man that you need to go back to work, mm -hmm. uh, also uh, has said a lot of other uh, impolite things in his life. Like Maybe that. I should have him on the show. I think you should probably have him <laughs> on the show. He's, he's pretty darn impolite. Um, but but he, he, he speaks well. So... Uh, but I was going to say, when he was in first grade, um, I always start out the year with, like, what do you want to learn this year? Tell me what you want to learn, because I want to make sure that you, we get that. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a bunch of other stuff, but you're going to get that. So he's first grade, and he said, I just want to learn to multiply. Well, his older sister, always uh, the smart aleck, said, uh, you can't even add. How can you multiply? And he said, that's what I want to learn. So, okay, fine. That's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. So, man, we drilled math every day that year. I mean, you know, we did addition, subtraction, counting, skip counting. And by the end of the year, he knew all of his multiplication facts, mm. um, Twelve, you know, all the way to 12, 12 right. and 12. And, and he could multiply like a whiz. He didn't learn to read. Not a lick. 
<laughs> not cat yeah. in the hat. Okay. Right. But th- that's okay. That wasn't his goal. Right. Right. And like all of my, my uh, in-laws and uh, my cousins and people like that, you know, you take your children over to be a show pony. Well, he could not show pony off his reading because he couldn't read. So mm-hmm. of course I received great condemnation about that. Sure. And I was like, don't even, don't worry about it. He'll, he's going to read. Yeah. He's not going to read right now. He's going to read soon. And they're like, well, how are you going to do that? You've lost a whole year. Oh, what nonsense. Okay. <laughs> and so I said, don't just, just don't worry. I got this. You, so, you do know he has a date stamped in his oh, forehead, That's right. right. You know, I mean, if he's eight and not reading, then we're going to give him a label, right? right? Oh, yeah, the label. Okay, I'm not even going there. All right, so um, so that was fine. So that summer, after his first grade year, whenever he was like a multiplication king, we would be driving on around the town, and there'd be a big billboard uh, mm-hmm. advertising Jurassic Park. Well, what six-year-old boy doesn't love dinosaurs? So I would point to it, and I would like, John, look. Oh, there's a new movie. I bet you would like it. What's the name? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot you can't read. Never mind. Mm. And so then I just, you know, cut that off. Then I'd see it like, you know, in a newspaper back in the day when we had those. Yeah. And I'd point to the ad and I was like, there's that dinosaur movie again. When does it start? Oh, that's right. You can't read. Well, never mind. Ah. And I, ju- I did that for about a solid month. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then John brought me his sister's uh, reading book. Uh-huh. And he said, you have to teach me to read today. <laughs> I'm like, well, I got some other things on my plate. No, I have to know to read today. Well, you know, so when we went to the Christmas party for all of the uh, relative snobs, right. I could say, read it to him, John. Pick out the King James and let's read that. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it's like, just do it, folks. Just do it. Yeah. I mean, there has to be... I- <laughs> we like to think kids are like, you know, not people. They're not human beings, right? They're, they're kids. And that's a completely different beast. No, they're not. Kids are people. And, you know, I'm, I'll readily admit it, guys. I'm terrible at math. When I took the GRE, okay, to get into grad school, I got the lowest score you could possibly get on the math portion, but I don't like math. I've never liked math. I, I mean, I did what I needed to do to get out of high school, to get out of my undergrad. You know, I can do it, but I don't really enjoy it. It's not my thing. Big deal, right? Well, as an adult, am I going to sit there and, you know, do something that I don't want to do? No. You know, good luck getting your kids to do that. I mean, that's part of being a you know, parent, making your kids do things. Like as an adult, I don't, I have stuff that I don't want to do that I have to do. But when you're talking about educating a young mind, your job, both I think as, as a parent, because if you're a parent, you're also a teacher. Correct. And even as a classroom teacher, your job is to show them the wonderment of the subject that they're you know embarking on to learn. You can hand them a map, you can give them a compass, you can be a guide, but they have to walk across that terrain themselves if they're really, truly going to learn it and master it. That is so true. That is so true. By, uh, you know, of course, with eight kids, I have uh, IQs that range from I can tie my shoes to I'm really too smart to be in the room. And uh, and I have to say the number one thing that determined if they were going to be successful students, both in, 
you know, their high school and undergrad degree um, and all the way up to their PhD was curiosity. Mm -hmm. What are they curious about? What do they want to know? And some of mine without the highest IQs went on to achieve great things because they were so darn curious. You couldn't quench their thirst. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to do as parents and as teachers is just keep them curious. And it's the opposite of what public ed is doing. Mm -hmm. They're saying we have it all figured out and you just listen to us and we'll give you all the answers and then you'll know everything you need to know. Instead of just saying, I don't get it. I wonder what would happen if, you know, like one of mine, I would, I wonder what would happen if I poured this cup of water on a Roomba vacuum cleaner? Well, (laughs) you know, besides the fact that you're going to get your behind beat, um, (laughs) then other bad things would happen as well, you know, but you had, they, they do, they have to experiment with all of that. Exactly. That's exactly. So I want to pivot now to virtue what that word means, uh, as opposed to vice and unpack that, because I think that is the missing component to, uh, for lack of a better word, public ed, I like to call it government school. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be public education. There's plenty of private schools that follow this model that are wrong, in my opinion. Correct. (laughs) In my opinion also. So we'll start with public ed because, um, You know, my husband likes to call that the pagan seminary (laughs) because the problem with public ed is that they can't teach virtue. Right. Because teaching virtue means I can define what's right. Mm -hmm. Well, that is an antiquated idea that something is absolutely right all the time. Mm -hmm. Telling the truth is always right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to uh, have a teacher that used to say, Honesty is the best policy, even when it doesn't seem like it at the time. Well, that's when it's the most important, right? right? But that's virtue. Loving my neighbor is virtue. Mm -hmm. Putting another person above myself, Philippians 2, 3, that's virtue. But if I come at you and I say, Scott, you need to be virtuous and put the needs of Jen, your wife, ahead of your own, Mm -hmm. well, I'm telling you what to do now. Right. Well, you're damn straight. I'm telling you what to do. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and I'm, and you know, happy wife, happy life. It really will go better for you if you do that. Of course. So, um, but that's the thing is that in this day and age, we have traded virtue for vice. Mm -hmm. So a virtue is a heterosexual monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. One man, one wife for the rest of your life. Oh, that will fly in the face of everything that public education stands for. Sure. And so um, and so that virtue, that beautiful picture, is not even unpacked for our young people today. Mm-hmm. Let me show you. Uh, my husband and I will be married 44 years next month. Mm-hmm. So let me show you the beauty of that marriage. Let me show you the things that we have been through, that we are able to shepherd each other through right. because of 44 years of being together. I There's no way. I could never, if I'm a public school teacher, I can't talk to you about the beauty of my marriage mm-hmm. because I'm married to a man. Yeah. Right? Right. And I, I like to use this analogy when I'm teaching our students about, um, you know, virtue. 
Uh, courage is an example, right? And so virtue is this overarching umbrella, and there's many virtues, right, that we can find in, in uh, you know, classical education. Uh, courage is always one of them that you find. If there's, a, if there's an enumerated list of virtues, courage is always in that list. Uh, so what is courage? Well, um, courage is, you know, doing something that you should be scared to do and doing it anyway. Um, and that's the virtue. So it's always flanked by vice and vice is there's two forms of vice. There's deficiency and there's excess. All right. So I'm a soldier. I'm on the battlefield. It's D-Day. You know, the, the gate of the duck falls down. I'm on the beach. I have to run forward. Right. Well, if I'm a courageous soldier, if I'm being brave, right, I'm going to, despite the fact that the enemy's shooting at me, I'm going to run forward on that beach and try to take that beachhead, all right? If I'm lacking courage, I'm a coward, all right? If I'm behind a rock, like cowering, shaking, crying out for my mother, you know, while my brothers run up that, that beachhead and, you know, they're getting shot up, uh, that's, that's not virtuous. That's, that is a vice. That is me being cowardly. Likewise, you know, I, I, on the other extreme, I can be so full of courage that I become reckless. If we're pinned down by machine gun fire and I'm like, the heat's not going to hit us. Let's go, boys. We can take them. We're the best unit there's ever been. And I stick my head out and dunk, get shot in the head. I'm, I'm dead. You see, in order to be a good soldier, you have to be brave. You have to have courage. The coward lacks courage. Correct. So he's not a good soldier. The dead soldier had too much courage, uh, and he's now out of the fight too. The good soldier fights that battle and then returns so that he can be of use later in more battles. Tomorrow. Yeah. So I like your D-Day example. I have another example. Yes. Um, the Trojan War. Yes. You know, and we talk about Achilles was brave mm -hmm. and he had courage and he did what was needed. He's a little haughty. That's another thing we can talk about later. <laughs> but, um, but he had courage and he did what was needed in battle. Diomedes on the same battlefield, mm -hmm. reckless, yes. and goes in. He's fighting the gods for crying out right. loud. You know, how much hubris do you have to have to fight a battle with the gods, right? right. So um, I just point that out because whenever we talk about teaching virtue, mm -hmm. like I get um, some friends uh, who will say, well, I want my children to have good character, but I don't know uh, where where exactly would you start with that? Well, of course, you start with the Bible, right. but you don't have to end there. No. Right? Yeah. Because in classical literature, mm -hmm. then you there are all kinds of examples of these virtues. So we, I mentioned the, you know, the bravery versus the recklessness. Uh, Achilles is great because mm -hmm. you can point to his hubris, right. um, so much lack of humility. Yes. And, yes. For um, the glory. <laughs> for the, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. I want to live a short time and uh, yeah. my name to be remembered forever. But you could live forever and, you know, but, no, I want the glory. I want the glory today. <laughs> right. And so, um, but also um, just kindness. Yes. You know, the virtue of kindness. And again, it's deficiency or excess. Kindness is right down the middle. Right. Where as if I'm coddling, this is my excess mm -hmm. vice, right? If I'm neglectful, right? This 
yes it's it's very similar to the path of heaven it's going to be very narrow it's very narrow it's very narrow it's virtue right so um when I started homeschooling, and I did not have a classical education, mm-hmm. I went to, you know, public school like most of my compatriots, and uh, my dad was actually the president of the state school board association. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. okay. So, you know, he was thrilled when I decided to homeschool his grandchildren. Ah, uh, yes. I wasn't even sure I had... He, he was pretty sure I didn't have permission to do that. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, so whenever I explained to him, I wanted to teach my children virtue, kindness, goodness, gentleness, the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, after you finish the Bible, how are you going to do that? And so I said, I have this two little volume book, the Synopticon, that shows me all of the different places I can go. And here it is. I knew you were going to bring it up, so yes. I brought my copy. <laughs> so this, ladies and gentlemen, is, I would say, my most prized earthly possession, uh, or at least uh, a, a piece of it. Um, would you like to yes. geek out about this? So so it's so wonderful. Yes, I would love to geek out about this. <laughs> because, uh, I, because the brilliance of Mortimer Adler, mm-hmm. I, it just blows me away that... Um, it's so great that he was so well read and that he had such a photographic memory yes. that he could remember these passages. Mm-hmm. So he could start what we today uh, call the great conversation. Mm-hmm. So the works of Shakespeare can talk to the works of Aristotle through their common themes. Yes. So he had 101 what he called great ideas. Mm-hmm. And so these ideas like goodness, kindness, gentleness, courage, wisdom, equity. And he would find and categorize all of the great passages of classical works under these categories. Mm -hmm. So um, when I started uh, homeschooling my, uh, my oldest son, I, I wanted him to be disciplined. Uh, You know, you want young men to be disciplined. And so, um, so I went to the Synopticon and found the, you know, all the places in classical literature, it has the theme of discipline. And we would read those works together. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that uh, whenever he was eight and I was older, uh, that was the first time I had ever read Homer's Iliad. Yeah. Because nobody thought that was important for me to read. Right. Until then. And then there were all those allusions to the discipline that mm-hmm. the soldiers had to have, yes. the discipline that the women had to have, um, and on and on like that. So, yeah, so that's why I love those books so much. It's such a great, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to snag a copy. This used to be uh, sitting on the shelf of uh, a government school uh, up in Oregon. <laughs> it was an old high school. It was a set. Uh, I got the whole set. I got it on eBay for 200 bucks. Um, but best investment I think I've ever made. Um, <laughs> right, and that public school doesn't even know what they sold. Yeah, no, it's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But you know, the way that he did this was he he takes these these great ideas, like you said, and I'm going to try to put it into modern technical terms. Uh, I think so people can get a better idea of it. Uh, imagine if you will, you're going to look up on Wikipedia, you know, uh, liberty. Right, so you type that in. That's one of the great uh, ideas. All right, so you type in liberty. You're going to get an article on liberty, and then in that 
Wikipedia article, you're going to find subtopics of liberty. He chops it up into different specific ideas. Like, are we talking about individual liberty, the freedom of, you know, being able to move? What are we talking about? And he breaks it down into these subtopics. And then it's the reference section that you make your money. Because within those subtopics, then you can look for specifically what it is that you're trying to address. And then it gives you bulleted points on where in the great books of the Western World series you can find it. So this is volume two and volume three in uh, the great book series. There's, uh, what is it, 52 mm -hmm. uh, volume set by Encyclopedia Britannica. It came out in 1952. And the rest of the set, so this is volume three here in the Syntopicon. Volume four is the works of Homer. And it goes through Homer all the way through. So you're going to get, you know, Aristotle. You're going to get Plato. You're going to get Sophocles. You're going to get uh, all the ancient, uh, you know, Mediterranean guys. And then it moves into, um, you know, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Rene Descartes and John Locke and, you know, David Hume into Adam Smith. It has Karl Marx in there. It goes all the way through basically what you would get in a Western Civ class in uh, college to, uh, what is it, Freud. So, right. You know, and it tells you where in each one of those ideas in that entire 52-volume uh, set you can find specifically uh, quotes that will back up that idea. And you can even, the neatest thing, as an intellectual historian, uh, you know, the history of the ideas, you, you can literally read and watch as that idea evolves throughout time for 2,500 years. It's so great. <laughs> right, and how it blooms. But yes. it's the same idea yes. for the ancient man as it is for the modern man, mm -hmm. if the modern man will attend. Right, that's exactly right. And, you know, like I said, there's lots of lists of enumerated virtues, for example. That list does nothing but grow. But the things that were originally on that list never change. That's right. So... Thomas Aquinas picks it up in Summa Theologica from the ancients who were, you know, not Christians. And what does he add? He adds, you know, the fruits of the spirit to it. And now those two are virtues, but he keeps courage. He keeps, you know, all the other virtues that were present uh, when Plato was writing, uh, when Aristotle was writing about it. And it just, that list grows. And That's it's, right. It's fantastic. This is fantastic. <laughs> yes. So, you know, go out and, uh, you know, Get, get get yourself uh, the great books of the Western world. You will not regret it. So um, we're, we talked about, you, you beat me on my list here of Oops, things that sorry. we're talking about. No, it's <laughs> quite all right. Uh, you know, um, we talked about a lot of these things. We talked about Mortimer J. Adler and his great ideas. And we talked about truth, beauty, and goodness. Uh, but I'd like to hone in on uh, the idea of truth, beauty, and goodness, and maybe the definition of great as well. Um, ah, okay. You know, uh, actually, let's let's pick it up right there. Uh, what when I say it's a great book, what mm. does that mean? What is Adler talking about? That's good. So <clears throat> there there are five qualifications for Adler to say it's a great book to mm -hmm. be put into a great books course, right? Mm -hmm. So number one, it has to be timeless. Um, I love talking to students about this because I uh, the 
easiest comparison I can say is, and and they get this very easily, Twilight is not timeless. Okay? (laughs) So, no, it is not. That's not timeless. All right? Um, It has to speak to multiple cultures. Yes. And so... um, so I won't get too controversial there, but to, for multiculturalism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we start in the Fertile Crescent mm-hmm. when we start reading history. And so the, you just don't get more multicultural than, sure. than that. So it has to speak to more than just my culture. Right. It has to, has to speak outside of that. It has to have a clear theme mm-hmm. or idea. Now, it doesn't have to teach a moral, so it doesn't have to beat us over the head. It doesn't have to be an Aesop fable, mm-hmm. but it does have to have a theme. I have to know at the end of this, um, are you promoting darkness or light? Mm-hmm. And you can promote darkness if you want to. Sure. You know, that's fine. Plenty but, of plays I can think of uh, by Sophocles. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And hello, has anybody read it, Iago? Yeah. I mean, what a what a goofy, terrible character, right? Right. Okay, good old Shakespeare. But, um, but so it's okay that we have Iago in the world because we do. Mm-hmm. But I have to know he's bad. Mm-hmm. If I finish a book and I can't tell if you were evil or not, that's not a that's not a great book. Mm-hmm. You didn't do your job. You didn't develop that character enough. <clears throat> So it has to have a, a really clear theme. It has to speak to another book. It has to be reminiscent. There's nothing new under the sun. So whenever I read a Shakespeare play, it should make me think of another ancient play. Mm-hmm. It should make me think of Sophocles or Euripides. It should I, It should make me think of that. It should also make me think of a current movie. Mm-hmm. It should, you know, it, it should speak across time and across culture, right? Mm-hmm. And the other, the, the last thing is it's got to be memorable. Yes. You know, if I, if I can't remember it next week, that's not a, that's not a great book. No. I like I like to always quiz people, you know, especially on the street, like just running into them. Like, hey, um, do you have a degree in art history? No. Do Do you study art? No. Do you know anything about art? Not really. What's the most famous painting in the world? The Mona Lisa. Right. Ah, the Mona Lisa is great. <laughs> that's 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 right. the easiest way I can unpack everything that you just beautifully said. That's but, that's know, exactly right. But that's it. So uh, because I'm old and I have lots of stories, I'm gonna tell one more. And that is the first time that I ever took my to- part of our school. We always take th- our children mm-hmm. uh, before COVID to Europe every year to see what part of the world there's they have been studying. Sure. And so we go on this field trip. So the first time that we took our youngest son. Ted, he was five, mm-hmm. and we took him to London, and he had been poring over this big book of architectural drawings and uh, blueprints and all the different famous buildings in London, uh-huh. right? So I take him into St. Paul's Cathedral, and I'm holding his uh, skinny little hand, and all of a sudden, he shoots up, and he runs up to the front of the cathedral, and um and the, I can't find him. And of course, it's packed. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm fretful. I'm about to call security, but I'm running down the aisle in the transept, right, right up to the front. And I look over to the left, and there's this little five-year-old chubby boy with his hands folded in prayer, kneeling at an altar. And um, 
I, I, you know, I, it would have been inappropriate for me to spank him right there in the middle of the cathedral, so I did not. But I did go over and kneel down beside him, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he said, this is the altar for children that are dying, and I'm praying for my friend Brandon that has leukemia. Oh. And I was like, how'd you know that? And he said, you showed me in the book. Uh, so when you said a while ago about yeah. people don't look at children like humans, yeah. you know, that's the biggest mistake sure. teachers make, right? But the other thing is that they think that they're only capable of the cat and hat. Mm-hmm. Well, there was my example of truth, beauty, and goodness yes. right there in front of me. Wow. You know, that here's this five-year-old child praying for a friend because he understood the beauty and the goodness yeah. of that act. Yeah, that's that's gorgeous. That's I love that story. That was that was special. Thank, Thank you. you. I truth, beauty, and goodness. I try to teach, and of course, you know, now that I'm working at Paideia, you know, it's a little bit different clientele that where where I just came from, which was the alternative campus for Aldine. But my methodology has not changed mm-hmm. whatsoever, and I tell all of my students this, that basically truth, beauty, and goodness has this relationship. It's it's a triangular relationship. Everything that's true is good. Everything that's good is beautiful. Everything that's beautiful is true. Mm-hmm. Everything that's true is beautiful. Everything that's beautiful is good. Everything that's good is true. And it's they are mutually dependent upon one another for their definition. But it forms this nice shape right here. And that, my friends, is the lens in which you should be viewing the world. Mm -hmm. And once you start to view the world in that lens, that makes it possible for you to start walking that narrow path of virtue and not deviating to either excess or deficiency in vice. That's true. That's true. And that's, that should be our cultural lens. Mm -hmm. And especially those of us that have daughters, um, raising them that you are not beautiful if you are not good. Mm -hmm. And, and you are not lovely and beautiful if you are not true. Mm. And that's, you know, that message is so lost yeah. in today's Instagram culture. It is. And it's because we've moved. I, I blame it's a product of the progressive era and, and all that mindset that we've already, you know, I have to say John Dewey again. I'm going to have to say Boo Hiss again. Uh, that he's given us, he's bestowed us this awful, terrible, smelly gift. Uh, and then one of the products that comes out of that is postmodernism, where right. you know, oh, there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as an absolute. Really? Are you absolutely saying that? <laughs> yes, I am. You're an idiot <laughs> if you think that. You know. Um, that being said, I have to ask this question. This is this is where I think probably the hardest question that we have to answer is are we losing our ability to think in America? Yeah, unfortunately, Scott, that's the goal, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, and maybe when I, I was younger and a young educator, maybe fresh out of grad school, I would have said, uh, oh, no, they just lost their way. Mm. And they didn't mean for us not to be able to think. And, you know, we just have to you know, write the ship to where they're, t- you know, we're talking about t- thinking again. And, um, but that's not true. Uh, unfortunately, 
That was the goal all along. It's a lot easier to contain an army that can't think. Yeah, and they're starting to say the quiet part out loud, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. How do we how do we fix this? How do we get back to a place where, you know, in the 1800s America was looked at as the shining example of what a republic could do, uh what an educated population looks like. Uh how do we get back to that? So I think a couple of ways, obviously we speak out like you're doing and mm -hmm. having um, thinkers come in and talk about these impolite conversations mm -hmm. uh, and say, like my, my kids always say things to me like, hey mom, you know, you were thinking that and you said it out loud. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing. We have to say it out loud where people are listening and we have to be, as you mentioned a minute ago, courageous enough to stand up mm. for what we believe. And um, I grew up in the 60s, and so I had a little Leave it to Beaver home and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then in the 70s with the moral majority, that was all really cool and good for us to be moral and to be ethically sound uh, because my neighbors were. And sure. I wasn't living counterculturally by saying, my children have to be in at a certain time. I want to say something about those 1970s. Uh, you know, politically, everybody looks at that. That was the real true start of the conservative movement. And I, I have to point out that no, it wasn't. Uh, you know, you look at what Mortimer J. Adler was doing in the 1930s and 40s. You look at his some of his friends like Richard Weaver, uh, who wrote a fantastic book, Ideas Have Consequences. Right. Uh, you look at, you know, Anne Rand was writing Atlas Shrugged during this time period. You had these intellectual move, this intellectual movement going on in conservative uh, circles, uh, you know, 20, 30 years before the 1970s. You know, you have William uh, uh, Buckley Jr., you know, getting all these people together to, you know, start writing news. Uh, and without having that, you know, there would have never have been you that have movement have that. uh, right. in the seventies and then getting Reagan in there in 80. And then, um, during that time in the forties, the early forties, late thirties and early forties, we had Dorothy Sayers yes. writing, repairing the ruins. So she was talking about returning to classical education mm -hmm. at the same time. Yes. You had other people talking about returning to being paid for your work and ran, you know, that, mm -hmm. so, so all of these, what we now see as the bedrock of conservative thought, mm -hmm. we're growing up at the same time. Yes. Yes. And so that, I mean, that's kind of one of my main inspirations is understanding that movement. And that's a little bit of what I'm trying to do here with, with this show. Like you said, getting people in here, talking about these, these issues. I know you're not a politician, but like we need your voice to be added to this conversation as well, because you bring such a richness uh, with your knowledge about all of these things that we've been discussing today into the conversation. And like I said, all of these political issues, uh, racism in America, uh, well, if we, you know, focus on natural law instead, uh, that goes away. Uh, you know, inflation, well, if, you know, we would just simply sit down and read Adam Smith, a lot of that would go away. Uh, it's all, it can all be just brushed aside and dealt with if you have people in a position of leadership 
that have exactly what you and I've been talking about today. I think the last thing uh, that we have to do, Scott, is to work together. Yes. You know, I think um, people don't understand that working with someone I don't agree with 100% Mm -hmm. is not compromising. I'm working with that person because, again, truth, beauty, and goodness tells me he has good ideas as well as some in error. Mm -hmm. But if I'll work with him on what he is passionate about and help negotiate and navigate the ideas that he has that are in error, Mm -hmm. you know, then we can both win. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. I believe that, um, that the enemy, uh, of, of a, a blessed America, an America that gets to return to what we were created to be, mm-hmm. is learning how to put some of my own agenda aside to work with you mm. to get what you want done. And then we can return to what my agenda is. That's well said. Thank That's you. Well said. So real quick, my last question here. This is going to be special and probably make you laugh. What is the paideia way? Oh, that's great. (laughs) So uh, Adler and I agree that the paideia way is uh, an intuitive way, that it is working with the individual and not making a plan, Mm. not programming this thing to death. I have a lot of friends who, whenever I started doing classical education, would ask me, how do you know when you're finished? When you're dead? Yes, (laughs) you're never finished, right? And so that's the thing about about the Paideia way. The Paideia way is me leading out and others following me, not not in lockstep, but mm-hmm. just a few steps ahead of them. Sure. My favorite conversation, whenever all of my kids and their spouses get together and we sit around a big table uh, with good food and drink and good conversation, and the first question on the table is always, so what are you reading? Mm. And everybody at the table has to participate. Yeah. You know, and uh, so this is our expectation that we're always learning. Twilight, right? That's what you mean. <laughs> yes, yes. For the third time, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so quickly, if, you know, I think looking at it right now, you know, as somebody that likes to pick up politics and analyze it and look at it, I, I'm excited as an educator because you know, for the first time in I think a long time, maybe my entire life, education actually is one of those like number one, number two, number three issues in America right now. And I think it's because of the way that, you know, the schools have been handling curriculum, teaching things in classes. And then, you know, when the pandemic hit and everyone went to online learning, the mom's like sitting there and spits her coffee out and says, you're learning what? I, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic did education a huge blessing mm-hmm. because parents could no longer say, I didn't know that. Right. You could say, now, now you have to say, I don't care about that. Mm. But you you have no excuse. Um, to you, you have to know. And I'm seeing a lot of people yanking their kids out yes. of public school right now or government school. I got to correct myself, government school. Yes. We're, um, yeah, Paideia is a, you know, is a private 
classical Christian school is thriving mm -hmm. and, um, and we're growing. And even now, here we are at what people would say is close to the end of the year, he heading into the fourth quarter of the year. You know, we're still adding students every week. Mm -hmm. And and again, because we're in this lockstep mindset of people saying, uh, oh, well, maybe I'll pull my kid out at the end of the year. I need to let him finish out the school. But you know it's a deficient education, right? Mm -hmm. I do know it is. So you're going to make them eat stale bread? You're, you yeah. know, I mean, we got to get this, got to, you know, finish. Rip the band off. Completion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why? What is that? They're not... You know, they can enter any time yeah. and learn whatever we're, we're reading. So if you wanted to yank your kids out of government school and you were interested in maybe sending them to, you know, if they live in the Magnolia, Conroe, Willis, Spring area, we have three campuses. Right. How do we get them? in touch with you so our website is pcs edu um and that just is paidea classical school you can google us uh we, as of today we're the number one uh classical school that comes up if you google somewhere in the montgomery county mm. uh area and we'll come up and you'll get to come and visit and uh take a tour bring your kiddos let them hang out with our little nerdy kids mm -hmm. and you know have a play date my little uh my daughter uh always used to say come play school with us and uh, and she didn't get it that that really was her real school but you know they would just come play school with us. <laughs> uh, but yeah come play school with us and let us show you a different way of life it is totally a different way of life excellent well i want to thank you so much time <laughs> i want to thank you so much for your time today uh and for for coming out and agreeing to come on the show and i've just had i can't believe a whole hour has flown by huh? I know. we talked a lot <laughs> i can talk about this all day long but I, i'm i was glad to have you on and i, I hope our listeners uh enjoyed hearing it as well uh dr johnny sego ladies and gentlemen thank you so much thank you scott i want to thank uh Dockline studios once again for hosting us uh exciting news we are now up on spotify we're up on apple podcast and we're on google podcast we also have a YouTube channel. I'll just type in Impolite Company, uh, and you can follow us and subscribe there as well. Hit that like button, um, and you can make sure that you don't miss a single episode if this is the kind of content that you're interested in. We thank you most of all, uh, our viewing audience, for uh, you know everything that you guys do in listening to us. Have a wonderful time, and we'll see you next time on Impolite Company.